Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So thankful that you are joining us yet again for another episode. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, if you like what you hear today, make sure you share it with a friend, share it on Instagram, Spotify, uh, share your Spotify with a friend, um, share it on Facebook, wherever uh, you can share it with someone else. Um, would be super helpful for us. We're thankful for that. We hope that uh, this podcast in general is just um, a blessing to you and to anyone it could be. So, hey, we have been walking through the book of Revelation. Are you making sure you're unplugging your phone? I am because it, it did ring. undoubtedly ring. It did ring last time. So we're walking through the book of Revelation, but here the last few weeks, we decided just to take a brief pause before we hop into chapter eight. I mean, primarily because I'm still studying the book and chapter eight gets a little bit more difficult. Uh, And so I'm studying it uh, and I need to be reading on it more. Um, But uh, we decided to take a few weeks here just to kind of have some fun conversation between the two of us. Um, And we're going to talk about a very particular topic. Um, But before we do that, Hey, Corey, have you been watching anything, reading anything that you've been enjoying lately you just want to talk about? It could be serious. It could be fun. Well, I I would prefer the fun, but probably going to be more serious. Um, But there's two things that uh, one is I've been reading Gentle and Lowly. And uh, man, it is phenomenal. And so I would encourage anybody to read that book. Just really the heart of Christ for his people. And uh, just one of the things in that book that it really stood out to me that just talked about Christ moving toward us, uh, even in our sin and, uh, was pretty powerful. So that's good. And then I've had a couple of church members that have talked to me about that. And maybe you've seen it before. Um, it's on an app called the chosen. Have you, have you yeah, watched, did you watch that? No, I have watched literally watched part this of the first episode. It. Um, nice. and so like, it's, uh, it's really, so far so good like it's uh okay. it's pretty you know i mean like obviously they have to take some liberties because that sure. uh, scripture doesn't give us every move and every word that everybody said but um but so far it's been really good bathroom right no well except for that king and judges that got yeah. stabbed while he was going to the bathroom so, uh, yeah i was yeah. thinking more of like it, the the gospels because the chosen is following the narrative yeah. of Jesus's life, ministry, right. death, and resurrection, right? So um, I, I heard someone say that they show Jesus being somewhat humorous, maybe even sarcastic sometimes. Is that right? I actually haven't got to the part where Jesus has been shown yet. Like okay. this, okay. this yeah. first episode is about Matthew and it's, uh, it's setting it all up because Nicodemus is in there and he goes and actually um, tries to uh, exercise the demons from Mary Magdalene okay. and is unsuccessful. And so like, it just, it's given some interesting, interesting possible backstory i mean obviously there's yeah. no way for us to know right. um but it's uh it's pretty cool so far and so yeah but i have not encountered uh jesus in the storyline yet so that's cool yeah i've been wanting to to try it out um i you know is it bad to say that i feel like i'm somewhat burnt out of trying christian movies and christian tv like and and not, not that i don't want to support you know a good christian movie or a good christian show um, but man, some of them are just so bad. Like cheesy. they're just yeah. cheesy, almost have like feel like prosperity gospel type of yeah. backgrounds. Like that Christian wins, the atheist is terrible, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe there's one atheist that like has a, you know, right before they die conversion story or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, so I, I feel like I've been a little bit burnt out on some of those. Usually people don't realize their budgets are huge. They're making a lot more money than you think they are. And so Christians are like, make sure you support them because they can't make it otherwise. And no, like they're making a ton of money. They're just not spending it where they should wisely to well, make it actually. Now quality. you can have a whole network, right? Because you got Pure Flix. And so like, you can watch that all the time. There you go. I haven't watched any of that. So I probably shouldn't be commenting on it, but it just, I mean, it looks super cheesy. Yeah. But, yeah. And you, so what, what is it? Uh, the, uh, did Nicholas Cage was, it was it even one of the left behind movies? Like yeah. And point? the most, the more recent one yeah. uh, back in like 2017 or something like that. Um, and so I've never thinking, seen, never seen the left behind movies. Okay. Well, um, 
I, I just thought, man, whenever this thing can't get any cheesier, then they bring in the worst actor ever. And I know people will probably hate me for saying that, but like, if you don't think Nicolas Cage is the worst actor ever, uh, go watch Con Air and listen to his Southern accent because it is terrible. <laughs> Jesse um, never seen Con Air and we literally watched it like last week. I'm not even, I'm not even making that I up. I mean, and it is no so disrespect bad. to Nicolas Cage. I'm sure he works hard, but that, that, uh, so bad. that Southern accent was terrible. So, yeah. So, um, we're, we're watching Jesse and I are watching uh, a show or a movie right now, a series of movies. And, uh, and some Christians might think I'm already terrible for not supporting Christian movies, but also telling you that I'm watching a very secular movie uh so we're watching the harry potter series through right now just kidding nothing that brings people together like in the 90s having a book burning of the harry potter books right yeah, um yeah. so uh and the alternatives that came out that were just as much witchcraft and wizardry uh but with a christian spin to them um so uh no so we're re-watching the movies and uh, i'm gonna say something pretty wild here um so i'm a c.s lewis fan right mm-hmm. Uh, I am thankful for the Lord of the Rings and J.R. Tolkien's or J.R.R. Tolkien's, uh, you know, writing. Um, but I like, if you're to compare Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter, I think Harry Potter is just a better story. Like really? Totally. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean you, you read, you I'm read argue so, with you a little bit. Well, I'm going to argue back at you. That's fine. <laughs> so, so go ahead go ahead well my my argument is i'm going to throw the jesus card at you like because tolkien's is the cosmic story of good and evil that is based on uh you know cosmic redemption and all that stuff yeah and so i don't know that that's can be improved upon that's all i don't i don't think god's version can um right so so so, and then uh c.s lewis um he said it was not an analogy for the, the cross, like Aslan and stuff like that. Have you read about that? Like, no. I don't know how it couldn't be, but that it's not supposed to be a direct analogy, um, which I'm somewhat happy for, because if you read toward the end of yeah. the books, he has like the inclusivist idea of, mm-hmm. oh, well, he was a worshiper of Tash, but really he was a worshiper of Aslan. Okay. So that's really bad theology. Right. Um, so um, hopefully that's why he did a hold saying, of that. Right. I don't know if he inclu- hold, held to inclusivism, but he did. Um, he hated Calvinism. Um, I know that. Like that's he's known to have hated that. So um, regardless of where you stand, sure, regardless of where you stand on that, um, you know he had very uh, particular views about things. So um, yeah, if you, if you read part of the Chronicles of Narnia, I've never read all the books. I've read a lot of the books. I've watched the movies. Um, Harry Potter's just really good. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, like as much as you have to really read into C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia to find some things that are biblical, I know without a shadow of a doubt uh, that um, J.K. Rowling is not a believer. She says that, but dude, there is like Slytherin is like the people of the snake and Harry Potter, the the son of, um, uh, it was, it was, bruised on the heel scarred on the forehead right comes to crush the head of the serpent which is voldemort like literally crushes him and it's it's just a cool story and he gives his life uh for the good and the bad people that he knows uh not just the good people and so really see uh, i didn't know all that dude i'm not real familiar with the storyline at all it's really good like it's legitimately good so uh i know all the half of our small listenership right there well you know what what's going to happen is is there's going to be people that you know send us an email about how we shouldn't delve into witchcraft and wizardry who also are selling their you know essential oils to heal your foot and your hand and your nose and your forehead and your body and stuff like that i'm a believer whatever so um yeah we actually have essential oils in our house so uh, hey, let's let's get into more important things now that we have lost our audience. Um, there you go. Uh, so let's 
hop right into what we're going to talk about today. And interesting enough, we're going to talk about one of the perspectives of the book of Revelation, a very particular one. It's actually a newer perspective. And, um, and that perspective is uh, dispensationalism. So dispensationalism is a relatively new perspective. If you're to look at the life of the church post-resurrection, um, in the 1800s, there was a gentleman named John Nelson Darby who began looking through a framework of understanding not only the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible and seven different dispensations uh, of, um, of God at work uh, in his uh, creation. And uh, the framework that he put out really um, had unique understandings of the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, that idea of dispensationalism birthed out of John Nelson Darby um, had ramifications in many uh, ways through pastors that held on to those views in specifically North America. Um, pastors like Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible, um, like Billy Sunday and a lot of revivalistic preachers. Um, uh, and so uh, eventually with, uh, is it Tim LaHaye and the other guy who wrote Left Behind that no one remembers his name? Jerry B. It? Jenkins. Jenkins. Uh, so um, very much the dispensational framework of the book of Revelation. So um, if you were to ask the, the average person probably in North America uh, what they think about the rapture and what they think about the end times and what they think about uh, Israel, most likely they're going to um, respond to you somewhat similar um, to a response that someone who knew dispensationalism and has taught dispensationalism would respond with. Um, so Corey and I both have grown up in churches that um, were very much um, premillennial dispensational uh, churches, which uh, means that uh, uh, in the framework of the book of Revelation, it's futurist. Uh, so majority of all the book of Revelation is in the future. So once you get past the churches, you're getting into something that really didn't affect the churches that were initially written to, meaning the seven churches in Asia Minor, because basically chapter five, six and beyond, really is chapter six and beyond are all lumped into a future event and category um, that wouldn't be touched until basically the breaking of the seals in a far future event. Um, and then, um, uh, that the rapture would happen even be before that point. So the church may be experiencing persecution across the world would be raptured out of anything to happen chapter six and on uh, for a seven year period of time where things on earth would just look terrible, horrible with the bowls and the trumpets. Um, but the churches with resurrected bodies raptured um, for seven years as wrath is happening. Uh, they take the seven years out of 70 weeks in Daniel and then um, it, the, the primary purpose of those seven years is so that Israel will um, basically repent and turn to Christ, turn to believe that um, Christ was the Messiah. After that time period of seven years um, of wrath uh, called the Great Tribulation, uh, Christ will return a second time. So he's already come once to rapture his church, 1 Thessalonians 4. He'll come a second time, 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, people in great fear um, uh, uh, um, will... Um, basically run from the Lord and um, he'll cause basically um, uh, judgment to fall upon the earth, specifically in um, uh, another resurrection to take place, which will resurrect unbelievers. And basically he'll cast them into um, uh, hell. Um, I guess this is after though the thousand years uh, happen, which is another thing that I didn't just pass right by. So he returns, <laughs> thousand years happen, sorry. Then the resurrection of unbelievers, then judgment, then um, new heavens, new earth. And so um, most people wouldn't be able to just easily spout out that framework, but they'll know the seven years of tribulation. They'll know um, the thousand years to come uh, in the future, whatever that might look like. And they'll know um, eternity with Christ uh, uh, majority of all that. So, um, so that's the dispensational framework, literal seven years of tribulation for Israel, um, Israel being separate entirely from the church, separate entity, um, separate resurrection for them, two comings of Christ, literal a thousand years, then a third resurrection of unbelievers unto judgment. So um, I just spewed all of that out there. Anything you want to add before we just walk through some things about dispensationalism? Well, not really. I mean, I just think that that is, it goes back, it's worth saying again, is that most people have that framework because you mentioned the Ryrie Study Bible. 
like that was one of the very first study Bibles that was put out. And so like there were so many people that they got that study Bible and like we can all admit revelation is difficult to understand. Like you really got to do some digging. And so like whenever that, whenever that was laid out as a, as an explanation for people, that was easy to latch on to. And it probably is the frame of reference for most people uh, growing up in America. Um, and so um, we're not saying that that's, you know, terrible that you hold to that. It's just, would to be expected that that's the case. And so, but we're just going to address some things that we see as inconsistencies with it. Yeah. So, so we hadn't even really talked about that, but basically this episode is all going to be about, Hey, this is kind of the framework we grew up with for understanding the book of revelation, even the Israel and our hope being basically to be um, grabbed and pulled out of the earth to be with the Lord forever. Um, So we're going to kind of walk through that. Uh, and, and see, as you mentioned, Corey, some inconsistencies. So just a reminder, the dispensational framework as it pertains to Revelation is um, uh, once you get to chapter six and all that takes place, the church is gone um, because, quote unquote, there's no mention of the church uh, at that point on. That's a lot of times what people will say chapter six on. And so you have a seven year tribulation on the earth for Israel with the church out of it already raptured in heaven with the Lord. Um, and then after that, uh, of course, you've got a thousand literal years of Christ reigning upon the earth, right? Where people will still rebel. And then after that, you've got judgment and, um, and glorification. So we're going to walk through some of the main tenets you have to hold to, to hold that position and why we have after study um, found them to not be as convincing as we might've first thought. Um, so once again, we want to be very charitable here. Good golly men, women, men and women disagree on their positions on revelation on dispensationalism. Um, and I would even say that, um, dispensational being probably the most literal of the interpretations in many cases, um, it's, uh, it's to be commended to have a literal perspective of the Bible, right? Um, because, uh, when God says something, you want to at first take it, okay, what exactly um, is he saying here? And instead of rushing to symbolism, typically throughout the Bible, you want to say this exactly happened the way it says it happened or will happen. Um, We just find the book of Revelation to be uniquely written intentionally symbolic. And so to take it literally is to take it symbolically. So um, whereas the dispensational framework might say, okay, literal and less absurd, we might say, okay, to take this literally, you have to take it symbolically. So um, we're going to walk through some of the major tenets of dispensationalism and dispensationalism through the book of Revelation. So why don't we just take these eight? Do you have the list of eight in front of you, Corey? I do. Why don't you just start off and we'll walk through it together? Well, the first one is the rapture. Um, And one of the things about the dispensational framework is that they believe that the church is raptured uh, after or at the beginning of chapter four, um, that they're, they're taken out. And then there's, there's much that goes on after the church is after the church leaves. Um, And one of the, one of the difficulties with that is, is that you don't see necessarily the rapture, in the book of revelation. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't one that happens. Like there's, we, we know obviously from first Thessalonians four, that there the rapture is going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. And so we're not saying that rapture won't occur. We're saying that this secret rapture that everybody talks about uh, in the dispensational framework doesn't occur. Um, and that's one I, I can remember sitting down with a former pastor that I had and just asking the question. I, I said, am I wrong or do I not see this? Uh, am I supposed to be seeing something here that I'm not seeing? Because I kept looking for this secret rapture because in that dispensational framework, and I know you haven't seen left behind, but if you were to watch the movies, what you would find is that there's this understanding where, where people would be taken out and nobody would know where they went. And so like, I can remember even talks about there was this special font that they call that they, for newspapers that was called the second coming font. That was this large print. And like, it was supposed to be like all these headlines were going to be all over the place about, um, you know, 
that they were gonna they were gonna make up stories about like it was alien abduction and all of these things to try to explain uh why all these people were gone but like this rapture was going to occur and there was going to be worldwide chaos because some of the believers would be flying planes and they would crash and some would be driving cars and they would crash and like all of this stuff. And so like I went to him and I was like, am I missing something here? Because I don't, I do not see a secret rapture uh, occurring in, in scripture. Yeah. And uh, thankfully yeah. he said, no, you're not missing anything. It's not there. Not like yeah. That. Yeah. Font. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So you mentioned like they make up like alien abduction, like the first thing you do when someone's gone and well, a, when a lot of people are gone, right. Is okay. What do all these people have in common? You would think they would think all of these faithful people to the Lord leaving must be aliens that just randomly selected everyone that's been faithful to the Lord. Like the, well, the, the mean, most common they're, denominator, they're... right. <laughs> seems to be their faithfulness to the Lord. And if, especially a happening in North America, which I'm sure left behind pride didn't show all over the world. It showed probably primarily North America, North America at the time was popular in rapture theology. It's like, you, you know, you'd think that well, they the could counter least... argument by them would be, well, they're unbelievers. And so they're denying the truth. Of... Have unbelievers never heard of left behind? I, don't I mean, know. I know they're showing the movie left behind. Yeah, I get it. Right. But I mean, like, <laughs> come on, whatever. Okay. But that so, wasn't just in the movie. Like that was popular in culture. Like that, yeah. that understanding Even before of the, the secret movie. rapture right. was popular. And okay, so, so, so let's talk about that a little bit more. So um, before we move on to number two, so we've got eight, eight things that we find difficult that are m- main tenets of dispensationalism that we'll kind of walk through together. Once again, people disagree with us and, you know, we could find eight, problems probably with other views as well but um rapture so you mentioned Corey, that when you walk through the book of revelation you don't see a rapture you don't see christ coming and the church going up you don't see that right so um if you're going with that framework you have to find that right unless you go to another passage of scripture which does talk about um the, the church being caught up in the air with the Lord, which is where we get our word from the Latin rapture, to be raptured, to be caught up with the Lord, right? And in our mind, we have rapture. Okay, that means getting basically the heck out of heck out of Dodge, right? Getting out of here, right? Um, but if you look at First Thessalonians four, Christ in this return, it says in His coming. So um, this is why people have two returns of Christ, um, because this the rapture happens at the coming of the Lord. It says, um, Paul basically says, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So this is for those who have died and for those who still are alive when he returns. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, it says coming, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Doesn't sound silent to me. This is one of the loudest verses in the New Testament. There's three different ways it basically says, it's a stinking loud sound, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So it looks like we're all going to the air where the Lord is as he's descending, right? Um, so we will always be with the Lord. Paul's writing this to a group of believers who are distraught that a lot of people have died and the Lord hasn't returned yet. And he said, hey, don't worry. The Lord's coming back. And when he comes back, you'll be with him. Right. So a lot of people take that to say, okay, we'll be with him and we're going back up into heaven with him. Well, the initial descent of the Lord is downward. And so um, what I would typically argue for, and I don't know that we have to just get into all of the framework here, is he's coming down. Well, it looks like we're meeting him to come down with him. And in fact, Paul's very Roman in his theology and using Roman pictures often. And one thing that seems like he's writing about here is, hey, the conqueror is coming into the city that belongs to him. And the citizens of that city are going to usher him in and raise him up as the victor as he comes and claims victory, which was very, very common in that day for the conqueror to go outside of the city. Citizens come in, bring the conqueror in and say victory. Right. And so it seems like that's what um, Paul is doing here and go ahead. And that would be consistent with the triumphal entry because that's exactly what you see there. I mean, it's almost like there's consistency here, but anyways, first Thessalonians <laughs> five, on the other hand, if you hold to two returns of Christ and a rapture that would be going out here, you have to hold that First Thessalonians 5 is talking about a different return. Well, First Thessalonians 5 says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to write anything 
uh, to have anything written about you. For you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying there's peace. Sudden destruction will come upon them. Okay. So most people will say, okay, this is the second return, not just the second coming of Christ, but the second, second coming of Christ. And this is when he's coming like a thief, when destruction will come, because it says in this passage, you don't need to worry about destruction because destruction is going to come at this time. Most people will say, you don't need to worry about it because you'll be up in heaven with the Lord. It's a different return. There's seven years that basically are between these two returns. This is the day of the Lord, a different return, right? Well, here's the problem with that. Um, Paul's basically saying the times and seasons of what? Well, the, what he just said, right? So he's talking about the same return. And if that doesn't convince you that it's just two different sides of the same return, one being believers who can hope for it and um, uh, unbelievers who will not be ready for it. Um, if you look at Revelation chapter one, I think it's verse seven, Revelation chapter one, it says this, it says, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So when he returns, it's very loud. Every tribe, nation, tongue hears him. And those, the nations who don't believe him will wail. So this is the sudden destruction. How he's coming, he's coming in the clouds. First Thessalonians 4, the first one says he's coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him. That sounds like loud, every eye on the clouds, First yeah. Thessalonians 4, and then people wail. Sudden destruction comes upon them and they wail on account of him. That's First Thessalonians 5. For Revelation 1 is putting both together. So, mm -hmm nowhere else do you see two returns of Christ and you don't even see the rapture happening in the book of revelation. But what we do see is people cheering as Christ comes to make war. And I would say those are the people that are, are in resurrected bodies ushering the King in to claim victory. Yeah. Yeah. That was a long you, response. You know, Sorry. I, I, I will, I will concede one thing. I said, there's, there's yeah. no uh, rapture in revelation. Now there, there is a point in, Revelation, depending on how you take the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, if you see those as literally two people or the church, um, there's a point where, where um, God says, come up here. And so, but, but anyway, like what I was trying to say earlier is that, is that there's no secret about this, which I think is what you're getting at. It's like, I, we're not saying that there's not a rapture. There's obviously a rapture at some point. Right. right. Um, right. And, and we're going to be caught up in the air. Um, but again, to come back with him, like you're talking about. And so like, there's just not this secret event that happens that nobody knows what's going down. That it's secretive, that it's, um, that there's two of them. Mm -hmm. revelation right. revelation there's two returns of christ and that one return is secretive you, you just you can't find that right i mean nowhere so um so you have to find it i think if that's your perspective going in and so you have to basically figure out in the book of revelation how it's going to work out yeah because then you would have not only the second coming but the third and you never hear people talking about the third coming of christ right so jesus included yeah um so the second thing, and we're going to have to move quicker here, but I think that's going to be the majority of our time. Um, number two is two comings of Christ. So we've already kind of talked about this. Mm -hmm. So the first is the rapture um, being an, an escapist seven years out from here um, where you don't see that in the book of Revelation and a, a church just going out physically. You don't see like the church, the church is no longer here. It doesn't say that, right? Um, we need to talk more about that in a little bit. Um, but two comings of Christ, Revelation 1 shows that first Thessalonians 4 and 5 are the same thing. And so there's just not a mention of a second coming of Christ anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number three, um, tribulation. Uh, Corey, will the, will the church experience tribulation or not? And help me out with that. Well, uh, I believe they will. Um, okay. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation but uh, do not fear for I've overcome the world. And so um, like all believers are guaranteed tribulation, but what we're talking about here is this seven year tribulation period. Yeah. And um, most people go back to Daniel chapter seven for some kind of understanding about what this is. And it's the, the 70 weeks in Daniel and all of that. And so uh, I believe if I'm correct, and I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting their position, but dispensationalists will say that in that, that 70th week is the seven year tribulation period uh, when everything's going to happen. Um, and other other frameworks will hold that 
in that 70th week that part of it is the first part of Christ's ministry. And then the, the latter half of it is the time between the ascension and the second coming of Christ. And so both of them look back to Daniel chapter seven to get their frame of reference. Um, but the seven year tribulation period, like one of the things that's difficult um, for me in the book of revelation um to see that the believers are not going to encounter that is this continual call to persevere. Like chapter 13, I believe it is, um, which is way past whenever most people think a dispensational framework would, would be way past when they think the church is raptured out. It's calling believers to persevere. Mm-hmm. And so like, if they're not going to endure something some kind of tribulation, there would be no need for them to persevere. And this is going to get into, um, you know, what we're talking about on point number four, the difference between Israel and the church and uh, the unity you find of them in the New Testament. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. So you've got these letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which we've already walked through. So go back and listen to those episodes. Um, Philadelphia, Pergamum, Thyatira, you know, Sardis, Smyrna, those kinds of things. Um, And it says to all of them, to the one who conquers, I will give him Mm -hmm. yada, yada. So um, it says basically be faithful for what's coming. And we already know they're experiencing tribulation because John's writing it in chapter one. He says to to the churches enduring tribulation, my partner's in the tribulation. And he basically tells them, each of them, things are going to get hard, conquer, remain faithful, hold fast to the word, right? And a lot of people will say, well, after you get to the churches, everything's future. Well, he's intentionally given these letters to these churches to read aloud um, because of the things that might soon take place. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think we read it with Western eyes removed from its initial audience when we basically say, okay, he basically tells them to, 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 to persevere so that they might conquer. But after he basically tells them that everything's just future and they have to worry about Yeah. Right. 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 Um, that seems to be like, how could they have read it and thought, Oh yeah, none of this is going to happen for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. When he's saying to each of these churches, cold, fast, conquer things are going to get tough. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me make it a little bit more difficult. These churches are filled with Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And so if you think the tribulation is just for the Jewish people um, that haven't trusted Christ, then he's saying conquer to a church of Jews and Gentiles that have trusted Christ because things are going to get tough. They've already endured tribulation. He's talking about tribulation that's going to be coming, meaning more persecution. And he says, hold fast, but none of that matters to them. It only matters to people that they're not uh, ethnically and in the future. And that just Mm -hmm. seems so foreign to that audience. I mean, just doesn't make sense. Well, and one of the things we talk about whenever we cover chapter seven that I think is important here is um, there in chapter seven, it says, uh, the um, one of the elders asked, do you know who these are? Um, and, and he says, uh, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Okay. Well, coming out doesn't mean you have escaped it. It means coming through. They're, they've come out of that time when the great tribulation uh, is occurring. And so it means they've come through that just as the children of Israel would have come out of the Red Sea. That means they went through it um, mm. and they, they persevered through that. And so so I think that's important for us to see that, that yeah, I think believers are going to endure that. And some people... You know, I've even heard the argument whenever people are talking about revelation, well, what, what does it really matter? You know, like what you hold on that. And I think one of the things that's really important is that if you hold to this escapism mentality that we're going we're gonna to be out of here before um, tribulation comes, then you will not be preparing for it. And whenever it occurs to you, you'll be like... Augustine, who was devastated that the Roman Empire, you know, was destroyed. Um, and, and so like there, there needs to be preparation. And I can, I've told this story many times in my congregation, but I can remember a time when my parents set me down and my parents, I'm sure to this day would hold um, a dispensational framework. But one of the things they did for me 
And I don't know if they'd been to a conference and heard something or what, but like I can remember them coming home to me and they, they always told me no matter what happens to me, uh, to us, um, they said, no matter what somebody threatens to do to us, don't ever deny your faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things like we have to be preparing ourselves for, we have to be uh, preparing our children for, is this idea of perseverance, no matter what comes, is yeah. that you hold fast to Christ. And so to me, that's one of the, that's one of the, I don't know if you call it danger or not, that's probably a strong word, but that's one of the things that we have to guard against uh, in that dispensational framework of getting raptured out before the tribulation is we would not be prepared to persevere the way we should, the way Revelation tells us to. Yeah, that's good. Number four, so number one is the dispensational rapture. Number two is the two comings of Christ. Number three is the seven-year tribulation. Um, Tribulation being a word that's always used of what believers will experience. And number four, Israel and the church. So this might be one of the most difficult topics to talk about in a short period of time um, of all of these. But your view of Israel um, basically shapes your view of the whole book of Revelation, right? Um, So... uh, there was a joke that was posted online. Um, and, and I don't think we should be probably joking about these things, but I think it, it is somewhat similar to many of our experiences. If maybe you no longer hold to a dispensational framework and once again, good golly men and women hold to it, you know, and, um, and they've got scripture, right? So, um, uh, there's a joke that's basically like how to, um, hold to dispensational dispensationalism and it had three points to it and it was jim halpert next to a marker board from the office and it said you know number one ignore the first 1800 years of teaching on the church in israel um number two call everyone who disagrees with your perspectives of church in israel replacement theologians and number three don't see the irony right so so obviously it's it's a total joke and and i don't want to poke fun at any at anything but for for 1800 years the majority of the church uh, uh, the church's teaching as it pertains to the church in Israel, to my knowledge and what I've heard, seen, and read, um, was that um, uh, many of the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Christ and in, in his church. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you read Revelation, you see a lot of references to Israel, like the temple, and you see references to um, sacrifices being made and all these different types of things. Well, um, if you read the New Testament, you know that a lot of things have, have been fulfilled in light of who Christ was and what Christ has accomplished, that um, the sacrifices are no longer to be made. The whole book of Hebrews is devoted to the fact that sacrifices should no longer be made because Christ is our once and for all sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Beginning of John talks about God, uh, God tabernacling among us in his son, Christ Jesus. So he is the temple, right? Um, you see in Jesus's Israel, uh, or sorry, in uh, um uh, and Jesus temptation in the wilderness that he was the greater Israel and that he withstood temptation and sin. Um, you see that Jesus is the greater Adam and that he did not. So, so you see all of these different um, old Testament uh, um, references coming to fulfillment in and through Christ. One particularly being uh, the church being a new temple. And um, so uh, when you see revelation, you see all these old Testament references, you're te- if you take it literally without looking in the New Testament first, you're going to think, oh, these are what you see in the Old Testament happening again. Unless you look at the New Testament saying, okay, these things have been fulfilled in particular things or particular people in the New Testament. So um, here's what I have to say about all that real fast. If you look at First Peter, for example, you look at uh, chapter two, verses four through 10. Um, it uses somewhere around the realm of eight to 10 verses from the Old Testament pertaining to Israel and Israel alone, ethnic Israel, and applies it to the church. Um, uh, you see even the Exodus 19 passage where God um, makes a conditional covenant with Israel at the base of Mount Sinai saying, if you'll be my people and obey my commands, you'll be my holy nation, uh, my royal priesthood, those kinds of things. Well, Peter, who struggled with the Gentiles being included into God's people, writes very clearly that the church 
is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel as a people, as God's people. Um, he uses all those promises made to Israel to the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he uses a particular passage in Psalm 118. Um, and this passage, I know I'm going a long, a long way here, but he uses Psalms, this, this passage in Psalms 118 that basically says, um, you've rejected the cornerstone, right? Um, that, um, uh, that the stone which you rejected has become the cornerstone, sorry. And um, which in Psalm 118 was talking about foreigners outside of Israel rejecting God's king, right? Mm -hmm. The Israelite king. And uh, it was referring to you've rejected the real king, right? Israelite king. Well, Peter uses it for Israelites in this passage, Jewish people who've rejected God's king, Jesus, that you rejected the cornerstone. Well, if you look back where this is used by Jesus himself in Matthew 21, it's used in the parable of the tenants, Psalm 18, same passage. And it's, it's uh, used by Jesus to point to the Jewish people who rejected him, that, that um, there were uh, prophets sent and the Israelites killed the prophets. The son was sent, they killed the son, and they expected to have the inheritance because they were given a time over um, uh, to, to be tenants over God's land, the kingdom of God. But Jesus says in that parable, he says, you think you'll have the kingdom. It'll be taken from you and you'll be put to a wretched death. And those that receive um, the son, the king, um, will uh, basically receive the kingdom because you rejected the cornerstone, right? The stone you rejected become the mm -hmm. cornerstone. So Peter applies that to the church. And then of course you have Ephesians chapter two that says Christ in his yeah. death has made in uh, um, two people one, right? In his body, one new man in place of the two Jews and Gentiles, one new man, the church of the living God. So um, I say that to say that that determines how you view revelation. If you see Israel only as ethnic Israel, and then the church just not being mentioned. Yeah. And I think, I think that Ephesians passage for me is one of the most convincing arguments because Paul, who was ethnically Jewish, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, all of these things that he talked about. He never addressed the church as two separate entities, but always um, always addressed them as one coming together, creating unity. I mean, and, and you're right, these churches were made up of Jews and Gentiles, and there wasn't, let's go make a Jewish church and then let the synagogue continue because mm. God deals with them differently. That's that's never said. In fact, even in Revelation, we've looked at, he calls it those who've rejected Christ a synagogue of Satan. Right. And so, um, so for there to be two separate peoples of God that God interacts with differently doesn't seem to be consistent with the majority of the New Testament. Yeah, speaking of the whole synagogue of Satan thing, if you look back at Romans 9, in Romans 9, he says, not all Israel is Israel. And so those right. Jewish people um, uh, that were ethnically Jewish by yeah. blood um, in the book of Revelation, written 2,000 years ago and, and mentioned that there's a synagogue of Satan, they were not the people of God. Let's be very clear. Yeah. Yeah. That is not the people of God. The churches that receive the letter were the people of God, right? right? Um, so... Uh, this goes back to first John. I mean, the basics of our Christian faith um, is uh, if you've rejected Christ, you're not a believer. If you've received Christ, you're a believer, no matter what blood flows in your veins. If you reject, you've rejected the son, you don't know the father. This is first John two, right? So um, uh, there is, there's no other separate area of like, there is the people of God and there's not the people of God. There's not the gray area of those that do ritualistic requirements. And that's the way that they're made in. And this takes us to uh, number five. So Israel and the church number four, number five, the temple. Um, when you see the temple in the book of revelation, um, a lot of people will think, okay, physical, real temple again. But again, let me remind you then the new Testament, when you see the temple, every reference is, um, with the exception of like the temple locale used in narrative form, like that's where Jesus was, was at the temple. Um, and then Jesus, of course, making promises that the temple would be destroyed. The physical temple will be destroyed. Every other reference to the temple is the people of God throughout the entire New Testament, right? Yeah. That it's uh, the, the, the greater in quality and quantity temple is the people of God and it's living and it cannot be destroyed by human hands, Right. Um, that's the temple. And so when you read the book of Revelation, your first thought, at least my thought in, in reading the book of Revelation shouldn't be, let's go back to the Old Testament and find where another temple should be built. 
right. rather, okay, what did the Old Testament temple point to? And it was the people of God, the living temple, the greater temple in quantity and quality, the people of God. And so, and I would just say this, you know, um, when you see the temple of God in um, the book of Revelation, you see um, in the dispensational framework that there'll be sacrifices being had in there again, right? And then it'll be defiled by an antichrist coming in and defiling that temple. Well, if you believe there's a literal physical temple and there's sacrifices being had there and an antichrist comes in and defiles it, how does it defile it? Because how can you get a temple more defiled than proclaiming that Jesus Christ was not enough in his sacrifice um, by making physical sacrifices again? You can't right. get more defiled than that. That's the whole book of Hebrews. Don't do that because it defiles the name and the person and the work of Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we should first look at the fulfillment of the Old Testament rather than just find Old Testament passages. Um, and I think that's where there's a, 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 um, an inconsistency and dispensationalism as it pertains to Israel and the church, the temple of God. Well, and just to kind of, kind of back that up too, like all of those things in the New Testament, but if you, even if you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, you think about the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. It never returned. Mm. And now the glory of the Lord, the spirit of God dwells in believers who are yeah. the temple of God. Right. Um, and so, you know, even, even if looking back at the Old Testament, there would be some inconsistency in that because what is the temple other than just a bunch of stones if the presence of God isn't there? Like yeah. that would be pointless because that was their whole thing is, and that's why Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman the way he did, the woman at the well about, uh, you know, there's coming a day when you worship me in spirit and truth and it won't be uh, in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. And so, um, yeah, there's, it, it has to be the people of God are the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Peter two, you are living stones. First Corinthians six, you are the temple of the living God and God is dwelling in you. The crazy thing when you look at the old Testament is that God resided amongst his people in a place he made holy in the temple in the new Testament, God resides in a people he's made holy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, not just in a particular locale, but in a people, right? And that yeah. temple is growing in quantity, people coming to be saved, becoming living stones and quality. It's indestructible, right? Yeah. Um, the two temples before have been destroyed. The church of the living God will not be destroyed. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? This, right. this spiritual indestructible temple. So Okay, so number one, the difficulty of the dispensational rapture. Number two, the two comings of Christ. Number three, the seven-year tribulation. Number four, Israel and the church. Number five, the temple and the people of God. Number six, um, three resurrections. Help me understand what is meant by three resurrections. And most, most people who hold this framework won't say there's three resurrections right off the bat, but they have to hold to that, right? Um, so uh, you want me to lay that out just briefly? I want you to. Okay. All right. So this is what I've, this is what I've heard about the three resurrections. So in the dispensational framework, you've got a seven year tribulation before the seven years or at the beginning of the seven years of the rapture. Um, there's, there's no way, I don't think anybody takes this, but there's no way to separate first Corinthians 15, the resurrection of, of believers with the rapture. That is the same event. First Corinthians 15 makes very clear that using the same language, the trumpet call, the voice of the archangel, that's when believers will be resurrected. So your the rapture event is the resurrection of the dead. So you get new bodies at, at the, the rapture event, wherever you think about it. First Thessalonians 4 is first Corinthians 15. So there's resurrection. If um, the seven-year tribulation is for the, uh, uh, the Jews, well, if it's yeah. for the Jews, um, and they come to know the Lord, and believers with resurrected bodies are in heaven, um, the, the thought is, is when they die, they don't automatically get resurrected with resurrected bodies during that seven year period. So they go um, like with like a soul, uh, 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 um, a bodiless spirit into heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they are what believers were prior to the first resurrection. Okay. Seven years up here. Jews believe during the seven years come up here, but they're bodiless. Right. And so you have this weird coexistence of, bodied believers and bodiless now believers that are Jews. And then after the seven years, they then receive their resurrected body as they come down 
to the earth to reign for a thousand years. So now you've got bodied believers, um, bodied Jewish people, because they're two separate entities in this framework. And you still have yet another resurrection because those during the thousand year period that have died without Christ um, are dead um, in hell. And then they're resurrected. So there's the third resurrection for judgment to be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. So there's three resurrections that take place. I think the most difficult part of that is you have the coexistence somehow of in heaven, um, which I think even the idea of having a body in the intermediate state of heaven is really interesting. Um, but you have that and you have bodiless Jews during that seven year period. But yeah. And, and, and I would just say, good luck finding scripture for, for bodies in heaven, not new heavens, new earth, but bodies in heaven next to bodiless spirits in heaven. And then finding scripture for three different, different resurrection resurrections. Yeah. Seems like the hope of everybody's one resurrection first Corinthians 15. And I think too, it's difficult because most people, whenever whenever you're talking about heaven, they're thinking, you know, they're not thinking the intermediate state before the new heavens, new earth. They're thinking that's where we're going to be for eternity. And revelation clearly states that we're, you know, heaven, the new Jerusalem will come down and be joined to the earth and it'll be one and God will reside with his people. And so, um, you know, I think there's even a misunderstanding about heaven and the, um, that, that being the place where we're going to reside for all eternity, which, I mean, truthfully, heaven is wherever God is, right? Like that, that's the definition of, uh, you know, the, the joy everlasting is in the presence of God. And so it's not as much about the place as who you're with there. But, um, but I think there is a misunderstanding about that too, that feeds into this um, and, and confuses people. So Which I may so, have just done more. I don't know. Well, so we would believe that when you die, you go to be with the Lord. I think there's scripture mm-hmm. reference to make Absolutely. that very, very clear. Right. So my grandma passed away not long ago. I think she is in the presence of the Lord, mm-hmm. but she's not been resurrected. She does not have a resurrected body. Right. right. There's far more verses to be said about the new heavens and new earth, the new mm-hmm. Jerusalem, right. Where you have a resurrected body and all tears are wiped away in the book of revelation that's talked about the final consummation of all things. There's very little to be really said about heaven other than believers are with Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we ultimately look forward to is not the intermediate state of where believers are currently, but what believers will be in Christ in Christ's presence for all eternity after he returns. That's the hope. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's just do seven. Let's in at number seven. Okay. I think number eight's maybe not necessary. So, okay. um, um, yeah, in a, in a dispensational framework, you've got um, a literal thousand years. Uh, where Christ will reign on the earth in the future. And one of, in the future. Yes. After and, the seven um, years. Correct. Yeah. After the seven years of tribulation. And so Christ will return at that point and reign. Um, and one of the difficulties with that is, is that you've got both these, uh, a mixture of these believers and unbelievers that are coexisting uh, and Christ has set up his kingdom. But, but one of the, one of the things that's hard is the fact that they take that as a literal thousand years. Well, as we've gone through Revelation up to this point, like we've seen the symbolic nature of numbers. Um, there's uh, the seven spirits around the throne. Um, there are the 144,000, which was a symbolic number. And so over and over and over, you see uh, the nature of sy- symbolism through revelation and numbers. And yet whenever they get there, that seems to be the place that they say, no, this is actually 1000 literal years. So so you're saying everybody symbolically, you're saying everybody um, has to, at the end of the day, sort of pick and choose what they think in revelation to the best of their knowledge with the power of the spirit using interpretive structures to pick and choose, okay, which is symbolic and literal. And so when someone says, you don't think the thousand years is literal, your best response to that is, okay, um, neither of us think the seven used throughout the book is literal. 
neither of us think the 145, that 40, 144,000 is literal. You think it's, you know, literal Israel, but not exactly 144,000. The only people to think that um, are a part of Jehovah's Witnesses, which we would both agree here is a cult. So um, when you hear someone say, um, well, I take that literally, um, you just say, I think, I think the best thing to just remember is um, that would be one of the first numbers you do. Yeah. Right. And so um, when you're pinned into a corner of you don't take that literally, just I, I think it's good to remember. No one takes a lot of the other numbers. Literally, it's yeah. this number that people argue for. And so you're not a non-literal um, uh, believer in non-believer in inerrancy when you when you take a number symbolically on all sides. We, we've taken symbolic numbers here in the book. So um, and I think that's that's a great point, too, because sometimes whenever people hear literal and non-literal they're thinking true or false which is not the way we're using it yeah right um we're we're talking literal and symbolic as being uh opposites there we're not talking about the truth of scripture or error uh at all right Uh, we believe it's all without error but we we have to look just in the same way you would not take the book of psalms in a literal way whenever it says the mountains um skipped like rams the hills like lambs like you mm. you don't think i mean that's a poetic way of saying something um yeah. that demonstrates the 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 fear of the lord whenever he whenever he comes in power but like in the same way you wouldn't take the psalms literal uh, uh literally in that moment but a poetic form here we have to look at apocalyptic literature and the symbols in it and understand what they mean um and if we think that's there's no precedent for it just make clear Absolutely. Yes, there is. Because there's multiple times throughout the book, it says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars are the mm-hmm. seven angels. Right. The, the harlot is the city, is a city. The seven torches are the seven spirits of God. And then, of course, the seven spirits of God looking at Zechariah 4 is the spirit of God. Right. So um, there's there's ample precedent to even start that road of saying, OK, that could be symbolic. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, looking in its own type of writing. It is very symbolic writing. And to take something symbolic is not meaning that you don't take something from it literally. Yeah. Right. Um, when it says, you know, God's eyes are like fire. Um, it's not to me taken literally as to say the only application we can get from that is how hot was it? And was it blue or orange flame? Yeah. It, yeah. Symbolically would take it further to say, well, you know what? They could be on fire. But the truth is the Old Testament gives us precedent to believe that what that means is they're piercing eyes that see all and bring judgment, which mm-hmm. I would say that's actually a more serious interpretation of the scripture there. Right. And yeah, that is a symbolic interpretation of it. Yeah. I, I, I do want to, I do want to hit eight real quick before we finish up uh, because I do think that is important before uh, we do you need to say something else. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on the literal thousand years. So um, we talked about the possibility of it being symbolic. Let me just say that the probability of it being symbolic um, when we look at the book of revelation, my, my, uh, perspective interpretation is not literal and less absurd. My perspective is typically like, okay, where's the fulfillment of this already found in the new Testament because the new Testament sheds light on the old, right? Just like the old Testament sets up the new new Testament sheds light on the old Testament. And so, um, we've already mentioned that like with the temple of God, for example. Mm-hmm. So in the new Testament, it is, nowhere to be found that there will be a future with Christ here uh, for a, a thousand years before, which is after persecution, before new heavens, new earth. Right. Christ, when he talks on the Mount of Olives, make it seem, makes it seem pretty decisively that when he returns, it is bliss for the believer, the wheat, and it is horror for the unbeliever, the chaff. Right. Um, so we, we use this phrase already, not yet sometimes. Right. So we're already the people of God, but we're not yet what we will be when he returns. First John uh, three, verse two. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we are the children of God now, but what we will be um, has not yet appeared. Right. So if you're to think that there's now, then a thousand years and then the new heavens and new earth, you have to basically argue for an already not yet yet. And then an already not yet. And then a not yet. Right. And so you, it doesn't it doesn't seem like when you look for that thousand years, you see that anywhere else in Scripture. And most people will say, well, that's when Christ reigns. Well, Matthew 28, when he went to the heaven, we, he went on the throne. And Matthew 28 says he has all authority on heaven and on earth. So 
A lot of times we think that is he has all authority in heaven. No, 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 no. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. And so there's a, no authority that he doesn't have, right? And so like, does he gain more authority during that thousand years? And then all authority in the new heavens and earth? No, make very clear. There's no authority he doesn't have now. And so I'm not against people taking it literally. I'm just saying um, there's not really much of a New Testament precedent for it. So it would be more probable, I think, to not see it definitely literal, definitely literal. Now, probability. I, I, and to, I want to give a little grace here because, and I could be wrong in this, so you correct me if I am, but I think part of the reason that the dispensational framework has that thousand years is literal. They believe that's another opportunity for free, for people to be saved. Okay. My knowledge and is. so do what? And that they won't, to my knowledge, yes. And that they, um, they, they would see it as um, even though Christ is present, people still won't believe. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. So again, but, but okay, sorry. But in the story of Lazarus, um, uh, we already have that whole idea said, and they would maybe say it's it's like the story of Lazarus. But I would just say Jesus doesn't need to teach that again because he makes it very clear in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that even if the prophets were to come back to the dead, your brothers wouldn't repent and turn to me. Right. Yeah. Right. And so if if he needed to prove that for a thousand years, um. He already kind of has, I guess, with the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to, that's the point I was getting to is like, yeah. you know, while that makes Jesus seem very compassionate for giving them another chance here or whatever, you know, like how many years does a person need? right yeah. to, to come to faith and, and think about the nature of salvation in itself is by faith. Yeah. Right. And so it's trusting sight. in Christ. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. And so we live by faith, not by sight. And so um, I think there's a, I think there's a little bit of things people would have to work through to say that, no, this is going to be this extra opportunity for people to get saved when Christ is literally enthroned on the earth um, yeah. in that kingdom. So, yeah. And Jesus did have a three-year ministry on the earth. Yeah. So he has already been present once. Right. right. And so if your if your argument is, what people need to see that when he's here, they, they, they won't still turn. Well, the Jewish people saw him face to face and crucified him, you know, right. not all of them, but majority of Jewish people cried Barabbas. So, um, so that seems just like kind of a reinstatement of something that's already taken place. that doesn't find precedent in the new Testament to make it overly literal. And I'm not saying once again, that people take it literal are just like terrible interpreters, but at all. Um, but I would just say it's, it's, not only possible, but potentially probable to see it as symbolic. Right. With precedent we find. Yeah. Or no precedent we find, I guess. Yeah. Now, do you want to briefly um, hit number eight? Are we going to yeah, do it? Just briefly. Yeah, um, you hit it. And, and, and the reason I think it's important is uh, the number eight is the fact that, that in a dispensational framework, they take things chronologically. And so many times you'll see these timelines that are laid out about this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah. And just from my um, preaching through revelation up to this point, uh, I've gone through the seals and the trumpet judgments. And what you see is this recapitulation of things happening in those two sets of judgments. And so I don't think the, I don't, I don't believe that revelation is set out in this linear progression. And I'm not saying that none, nothing you know, is future. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you, you see this, this repeated pattern that John uses and could be talking about the same event. So for just for example, um, at the end of chapter six, you have the sky being rolled up and the mountains and the islands being re removed from their place. I mean, that seems to be a very clear picture of the end. And then by the time you get to chapter, chapter 11, um, again, at this seventh trumpet, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself there. Um, Well, I've messed myself up now, but um, by the time you get by the time you get to the to chapter the end of chapter eleven, you have the seventh trumpet. Well, that is where God's kingdom is set up, hmm. and so like even if you take even if you take um, the the thousand years literally, that that's a that's that's difficult for you if you think this is a linear progression of things because 
chapter 20 is way past chapter 11. And it says chapter in chapter 11 that the kingdom of God has come and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so, so you have to reconcile how is it that, that the God's kingdom has already been set up. And then all of a sudden later in chapter 20, it says there's a literal thousand years where God's kingdom is set up. And not until chapter 21 does it say that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Yeah. And so there's just a lot of difficulty looking at this from chapter four on as this linear progression. And, yeah. and I've even had people come to me since I've been preaching this to say, can you just, can you like lay out a timeline of how things are going to happen? But I don't think that's John's purpose in writing right. the book of revelation to give us a timeline of end times events. Um, now I know in our minds, like that would be a lot easier. Um, that's why we're not in chapter be, eight. Right. Cause I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling. With it. But you know, like I, I just think that if we have to remove that from our thinking, because I don't think that's John's point is yeah. to give us this timeline. And, and so John does tell us in chapter one, the very beginning, this is a prophecy. And if you look at old Testament prophecy, it rarely is in order of its fulfillment. Right. Right. Um, I would just say too, that if you st stick to a strictly chronological perspective of the book of revelation, um, I would say one huge issue would be in Revelation 19, the beast and the false prophet um, deceive all of these different people. They're thrown into the lake of fire and the rest are slain with the sword. The very end of Revelation 19. seems like everybody's dead, right? Yeah. And the lake of fire has already happened. People have already been thrown into it. Then Revelation 20, it says the dragon is seized so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. Well, if Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19, Revelation 19, who are the nations? They're, they're all dead in Revelation 19. Um, so how are they going to be deceived? They've already been deceived. They've already been killed. Okay. Um, and then you've got the lake of fire that doesn't happen until the end of Revelation, which is after the 1,000 years, or the end of Revelation 20, which is after the 1,000 years. Well, lake of fire has already happened. People have already been thrown into it. But it says it's not, they're not thrown into it until the end of Revelation 20. So there's a lot of, as you mentioned, recapitulation throughout the book of Revelation. And it is difficult, especially holding to a chronological view. So these are eight different things that we have seen that we find more inconsistency to, uh, that we find more inconsistent to hold to a dispensational framework. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who hold to it. And you know what? There's difficulties about our own views. So I want to be very charitable and even nuanced as we walk through this, but we hope this might be helpful just as you maybe take an interest in wanting to study more about the framework or the presuppositions you're coming into the book with. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, absolutely. And I would also encourage everyone to, again, not take our word for it. Get your Bible out, do the study, because like, I don't know that Trent or I, either one, would consider ourselves uh, great, great scholars. Uh, like, we're just faithful pastors who are trying to interpret the Word of God. And so, like, get the, get the Word for yourself and go through it and you know, look at what we've said and allow the Spirit to work in your heart to help you understand. That's good. Hey, why don't you just go ahead and close us out? Is that cool? All right. Well, uh, we just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we hopefully will get back to our progression through Revelation here pretty quick. Um, but we've enjoyed doing these little uh, rabbit hole uh, sessions with you, and we will have more of them in the future, I guarantee. So, again, please share our podcast uh, as you can on social media. Please give us a review. That helps people discover it. And uh, we look forward to being with you next time. Whoop, whoop.